0: It's beautiful. I would ask you all to please turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. We'll begin this morning in verse 23 and continue through verse 27. Now just as a quick matter of introduction, I told you before that chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew give us a unique cadence. We see really three sets of three miracles and then the three sets of miracles are broken up by two callings to discipleship. So we really talked about the first calling of discipleship last week in the cost of following Jesus where you had first of all the scribe come and he says that I will follow you, says so very quickly and Christ says, okay, maybe not so fast, consider this, that there is no really good place for us to lay down our heads. You're going to be giving up comfort. And then the disciple who says, I've been following you, but first let me go and bury my Father. And he says, Let the dead bury the dead. And essentially, he calls him to the cost of other, even good earthly allegiances, primary allegiance giving to Christ alone. And then we enter into this next set of three miracles. If you look at 23 through 27, Jesus is calming the storm. And then you see that he heals two men who have demons. He casts them out, and then at the first of nine he heals a paralytic. And all these, we see that Christ again rules and has authority over all aspects of creation. And that's really important because at the towards the end of this particular set of miracles, you see how Christ is increasingly then connecting, his authority over creation with his authority then to forgive sin. And that's ultimately why we have such a beautiful picture of his, his miracles and how circumspect they are. They deal with all types, not just like in that first set of different types of disenfranchised people, whether it's people of a different culture like Gentiles as opposed to Jews or women or even lepers who were just untouchables. Or in our set now where we have so many different types where it's deliverance of demons, uh, physical ailments, or even over all of creation itself as we will see today. So it's a beautiful picture of his authority being given its due worth. Because then when he says, by what authority then do you forgive sin? Well, for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, they begin to see that Well, he has all authority. For those who have faith in, it makes sense. So as we enter into the message today, and we talk about these disciples that actually heard the cost and still choose to get on a boat, and even as we see them being admonished for having such little faith and even fear, we need to take some heart in this. Because what we've said many times, I think you're going to see it more clearly on display, that it is not the strength of your faith that saves you. It is not the quality of your faith that will deliver you from whatever storm you may be going through. It is singularly in the object of your faith, and that's Christ. You are not able, you don't carry the authority necessary to calm whatever storms are going on in your life. And make no mistake, we're not going to merely deal with storms being just earthly trials. Because I believe every one of these miracles ultimately points to what Christ, with His authority and all full of grace, accomplishes on the cross. The greater storm of sinful, even leading to damnation. What He can deliver us from, He's able. But in everything then, incrementally, we have to understand that. So really, honestly, I hope that some of you who feel like you have such small, weak, um, you know, JV, elementary school, babe-like faith, in some measure, I pray that you will actually take some heart today. Because even though it is small, it in a really great God. But in that, I hope also you will find a measure of appropriate spiritual discontent. That it makes no sense to maintain such small faith in such a great God. Because there's still yet more. And that more is not what, unfortunately, we hear from so many pulpits today. From so many books today. From so many podcasts today. Where that more is just something in this world. No, you still have to bring into this text all of the costs of following Christ. Letting goods and kindred go. Loosen your grip on the things that maybe make this world a little more of a tolerable kingdom. Jesus loves his people too much to allow us to love this kingdom more than we long for the next. To be with him forever. So with that, let us pray. God, I pray that you would help us this morning to understand the nature of faith, especially in light of what it means to actually follow you. God, I pray that we would also reckon that We understand, according to your word, that faith is not something that we can just muster. It's not something we can conjure up. It is not something that we can just hope will happen if we try hard enough. No, it is a gift that is external. It comes outside of ourselves. We are not born with a dormant gene called faith. And somehow, through some circumstance, it's awakened. That's not the case. Lord, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. There is nothing good in us, not even a morsel or a dormant molecule of faith to be resurrected that is worth saving us. Only what you bring. Only what you give. So Lord, I pray that as we see this text today, that we might also find hope, but also a passion to find greater peace in the fact that you rule all things. And Lord, that means you also have all authority to forgive and to cleanse and to even call us by command to repentance, that we need part of your eternal kingdom, the kingdom that we know we can hope in and that is certain and it is certain to be filled with joy and to be absent of all tears and sorrow. Look to that day. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Before we begin, I want to give you just a a brief little primer on faith. Faith. Uh, if you want to flip to these scriptures, that's fine. Otherwise, you can just write them down. We actually quote these passages quite often. But if you'll just at least write down these three passages, I want to give you on just a primer on faith before we get into the text itself. First of all, Hebrews 11:6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So first of all, understanding, I mean, very consistent with our passion statement, we understand the scriptures to say that all men are created for the purpose of glorifying God. That is nothing less than the pleasure of God. What pleases God the most is the glorifying of himself among all that he has made. And what glorifies him the most among those that he has made called human beings is faith. That we have faith in this God who glorifies himself, that we have faith in this God who Alone can bring redemption. And make no mistake, because the context of Hebrews 11, there's no fear that the second part of that verse that says, and part of faith is that he rewards those who seek him. There's nothing in there of works in and of itself. The context does not allow for it. In fact, the very chapter that it's introducing speaks of how faith that was given by God to people under dire circumstances actually is credited to them as righteousness. Meaning, it's not of works, it's only by God's righteousness because they trusted God to fulfill His promise, to keep His word. That's what they believe. It's the essential heart of faith. And ultimately then, the reward that we get from Him is, in a sense, saving faith. He gives us the ability to seek and then what we end up finding is even more of what He gave us the ability of, which is faith in a saving God. Ephesians 2.8.9 For by grace... You have been saved through the conduit of faith. And this is not your own doing. Okay, so the whole package is not your own doing. Grace through faith, that's not something you've done. Why? Well, same premise. It is a gift of God, not as a, re- not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God's going to receive the glory. You now are not. So one of the things to understand about the nature of grace and faith and how it works together is that Look, you and I know that our self-righteousness is insidious enough that, sure, we could say, well, grace is a gift, but but my faith. My faith got it. I get this. No, see, God is too good in this that he is going to receive all of the glory. Every bit of it. So he even pulls that little rug out from underneath you to think that the means by which you receive this grace is even your own doing. It's not. The whole package is not your doing not the grace and not the faith by which to receive the grace it's all a gift of god why so that we glorify him alone and do not boast in ourselves it's that simple so faith pleases him and the way that he gives us this faith is also pleasing to god now ultimately how does that come to us well we know it through romans ten seventeen. so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of christ hearing through the word of christ so how does he impart faith He imparts faith to us through His Word. Both to those who are hearing it at the time, but also as it's been recorded for us through the witness of the apostles put onto some form of paper preserved by the Holy Spirit and given to us down through the ages. So that's the primer. With that primer, let's look at our passage starting in verse 23 of Matthew chapter 8. And when he got into the boat... Okay, if you recall, back in verse 18, the crowds were gathered around. Okay, This is right after he had healed many. And he wants to go to the other side, commands his disciples to prepare a boat. And before he does, that's when he deals with the scribe and the disciple in the previous passage. They got into the boat. His disciples followed him. Now, these are not the, the, the many disciples. These are the ones who are most near him, those that he had called to himself amongst those 12 that we know of. And behold there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? So as we talk about the faith to follow Jesus, let's first of all talk about what I think we have to acknowledge right off the bat is that it's a faith that counts the cost. Remember the previous passage. These guys still get on the boat. Now, they don't know a storm's coming, but they do know that what Christ has already said. He has already said, you're going to have to let your family and in a sense, let the dead bury the dead. You're going to have to give first and primary allegiance to me. And you're going to have no security of comforts of home. Now, They don't realize that what they're walking into is that there's also this other sense of there's safety not guaranteed in this call. At least a sense of safety. The disciples continued on after hearing this, and to that we should commend them. We should commend them for hearing the initial costs and getting on the boat. But again, we have to understand that this is something that only Christ could do in them to even get them thus far. Otherwise, we would not. In fact, many had turned away even by this time. If you had looked at the parallels of the Gospels, you would see that many already to this point had heard and had walked away. That's the nature of it. Some respond, some do not. It never stops being that way, ever. Safety is not guaranteed. They get on the boat, to that, we commend them. We see some of their small, even though it's small, we still see some of their faith on display. And immediately, there are trials that test the call to follow. Christ goes further because he ends up commanding even the winds and the waves. We see that he is certainly sovereign over the timing of this storm. Nothing catches him by surprise. And he sees it as a goodness that even though they get on the boat, I mean, literally not minutes later, or at least moments, whether, you know, who knows how much time passed. But after hearing the calling to the cost of following Christ as a disciple in general, You know, maybe they feel like that they're safe. We would only speculate what it felt like to get on the boat, but a storm rises. Now keep in mind, these guys are fishermen. This is the Sea of Galilee. They know these waters. On a human level, they know them better than Jesus. trump card, though, is that He's God. He's fully divine, fully human. This must have been some storm to kick up to cause some fishermen who daily get out there for their very livelihood, to face it. In fact, we see it a little bit in the word swamped, being swamped by the waves. It literally means immersing, or it's, I mean, maybe we ought to add that word to our baptismal, but I think it it might add some fear and trembling to some. We want to swamp you. But the idea is a a complete blanketing or immersion of the boat. These are big waves. Sea of Galilee is about 700 feet below sea level. And when these tempests would blow down through the valley, sometimes they would kick up some pretty big waves. This one, though, seemed very unusual. Christ is very kind, actually, in this. So what we see in this is not only is this a faith that counts the cost where they at least get on the boat initially, but it's a faith that calls to Christ. So they're swamped by the waves. It's a big deal, but Christ is asleep at the end of verse 24. You know, there are some who want to kind of pick away at the text And they say, in a sense, that Jesus was just faking his sleep to test them. You know, like, there's no faking here. It's just simple and plain. In fact, it's really beautiful, to be honest with you. We see something of the beauty of his divinity and his humanity on full display just in the word of sleep. As a human, he finds new sense of, in a sense, frailty. Not sinful frailty, but just fleshly weakness that he needs to even sleep. Because we know that God neither sleeps nor slumbers. But Christ laid his head down. But being fully divine, He sleeps. There's a storm. He sleeps. Why? Because he rules it all. He's in control of it all. He knows what the plan is of the Father. So what we see then in this, as they go into verse 25, they went and they woke Him, saying, "Save us, Lord, we're perishing." And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and and there was a great calm. Faith doesn't just count the the cost to get on the boat, but faith also then calls out to Christ, at least even in its smallest forms. That's what faith does. Faith to follow Christ, at least in its most despairing moments, calls out to Christ. Christ. They believed they would die. It said, we are perishing. Though they were fishermen, well, accustomed to the sea, they believed this was it. We're done. They ran to Jesus. There's no indication that he was anything but truly asleep. And as they do so, they run to him, they awaken him, and they say, basically, if you don't save us, no one can. They had seen enough to know that Christ is the only place to go. We have no indication that they stop and quote other passages. They don't quote other psalms. They run to the one who's sleeping on the boat. They run to Christ. Even though Christ admonishes them for their smallness of faith, an evidence of the fact that they had faith at all is that they run to only Jesus. That's what we do. It's not a bad sign. In fact, I hope that you'll find some encouragement. But again, some measure of discontentment as well. You should at least run to Christ in your most despairing moments. When He allows you to enter into a particular ward of the hospital, or when you've received a particular particular diagnosis, or when you've gotten a phone call. For those that are kind of in my generation, you get that phone call and and you hear the, the news that you thought would always come that a father has passed. Most despairing moments. Where do you run? Where you run when you face death of some kind will give you indication of whether or not faith is even present. Now, certainly many people will cry out to God even in their unchristian senses in despairing moments. It's been well said that there are no atheists in foxholes. To some degree there's there's truth in that. But what we see in this is it's not merely an acknowledgement of the presence of a great deity. That saves a person. That's why, even though there may be an inclination of saying, yes, you're there, that doesn't necessarily mean faith. At least their faith was placed in the right way, which is only you can save. Only you can save. And they bank on it with their lives. Why? Because they'd already gotten on the boat. They'd already heard what it was going to cost. I don't think they really knew necessarily. I mean, comforts is one thing, but their very life. It is a goodness of Christ to test them this early, to bring them nearer to him. You know, this last week, many of you know, uh, on July 2nd, Louis Zamperini passed away. Um, If you haven't read the book Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrand, it is a fantastic book. It really is one of my top, probably five, maybe ten favorite books of all time. It's a great, great read. He was an American World War II prisoner. He actually ran in the Olympics prior to uh, entering into service in World War II. He was born in, in 1917 and then died again this last week, July 2nd, 2014. And his story has been well documented. Now, one of the things that's really interesting, because there's lots about this story that I could get lost in, and this, you know, for, for, for those who think I like illustration, this could be the most epic of illustrations because I, I love talking about this story and thinking about it, but... Let me fast forward to something. So after he'd experienced so much tragedy and trauma, he had been, he, he had been a, a, a pilot um, or flown on airplanes during the war, had been shot down. They were in the Pacific. Um, during that time, they despaired for their lives. They made many bargains with God and anything else they could think of. And then after finally washing ashore, you know, living was then immediately captured by some Japanese and actually was tormented by a particular Japanese officer who had then been, been listed as probably one of the top ten most just terrorizing men of all the wars. This guy called the Bird. And in fact, it's, it's actually somewhat well documented, if you become a student at all, of some of the wars, that some of the encampments of those who are in Japanese treatment camps, even though I know we have the Holocaust and those things are awful, But the way they actually treated their alive prisoners was far worse among the Japanese than it was even among some of the Germans when they would compare stories and speak of what was done to them. After miraculously being delivered and rescued, Louis, uh, with his wife, uh, went through an incredible time of, as you can imagine if you were to read the story, post-traumatic stress that happened went on for a good five years. His wife was on the the verge of divorcing him. He's going through counseling, but at the same time was an alcoholic and many other things that he ran into to escape. And finally, in 1949, they lived on the West Coast. He'd gone to school at USC. Billy Graham comes to town, and she says, you got to go. Whatever it takes, you got to go. And a few other people basically kind of helped make it happen. He absolutely did not want to go. Eventually, he went. And here's the description of Louis on that night. And this is a quote. Louis was winding tight. He remembered the day when he and Phil, one of his co-pilots, slowly dying on the raft, had slid into the doldrums. Above the sky had been a swirl of light. Below the stilled ocean had mirrored the sky, its clarity broken only by leaping fish. Awed to silence, forgetting his thirst and his hunger, forgetting that he was dying, Louis had known only gratitude. For some reason, that day, he had believed that what lay around them was the work of infinitely broad, benevolent hands, a gift of compassion. In the years since then, he had lost that thought until it came back to him at the rush of that moment when, upon hearing the gospel that night, Louis was radically transformed and converted to Christ. And it truly was a new birth conversion. In fact, he's. He's experienced the ire of many other veterans because what he proclaims essentially is that his post-traumatic stress literally disappeared overnight, as did every other vice. He says, what else is new creation than that? Now, he's an unusual person. For some people, it really does take time. But it's an amazing understanding of very simple faith that even before he was a Christian, he knew in a moment that he had to call out to God and if God didn't save him. And he didn't put the whole story together of the purpose of incremental saving moments like that until he was eternally saved. It's so often what happens for a new convert, particularly those who have come to Christ as adults. They look back and they see God's sovereign hand of how even when the faith was even at its smallest or its its. its It's just infinitesimal level, even if that was the beginning places of God, just beginning a long-term process, even though he wanted to curse God at times and die, beg God to kill him, thought many times about killing himself. But it was all part of a long history of God bringing faith to him to say, God, if you don't, no one can. But then eventually when the light turns on and he saves him, he sees how God had preserved him all along the way. And those things become a distant memory. Why? Because ultimately what's important is being saved unto eternal life. See, ultimately, this is why these memories would fade for a guy like Luzan Perini. Because in the end, what we know is little faith in a great God, ultimately, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. If you have faith at all, so if you're a Christian, you've called out to God, even if you feel like your faith is weak, and yet you know it's only in Christ... So even if you're a chronic doubter and you feel like that your faith teeters, you have to remind yourself and preach to yourself regularly. It's not the quality of my faith, the weak it is. It is, I, I believe, help my unbelief, kind of crying out to keep you from the doldrums in your doubting and in your, your paralysis in your mind as you examine your life. That what little you have, it isn't a great God. That's why Spurgeon says, it's interesting, he says this, he spoke to the men first for they were the most difficult to deal with. Wind and sea could be rebuked afterwards. Isn't that interesting? That's what he does. He said to them well, that's a teaching moment. Christ speaks to them. Why are you afraid? Oh you have little faith. And it's still It's like you can teach me later, but can you please stop this boat from rocking? And that way from like going over our heads just now. It is amazing that in that moment again. More captivating, I'm sure. Probably got his point across even more. But then he turns in a great, condescending, kind kind of way, rebukes the wind and the sea. Remember, those are two different, although conjoining elements for their travails, they are still two different aspects of nature. He controls, where does the wind come from? Christ speaks and it goes away. The seas, I mean, they don't come to a rolling stop. It's just great, calm little faith is better than no faith at all. I get that. I trust that. Their fear, their fear was full and to its highest. They were paralyzed with it. Even at its most basic level, it's better than none at all. We see this throughout Matthew. Matthew speaks of this, not just in this passage, but earlier in chapter 6, verse 30. Also over in 14, 31, he says this. When he says... Lord, save me, verse 31 says, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why do you doubt? That's just one example, but then in 16.8 and then also in 17.20, basically every time you see Christ deal with people with little faith, he still, with great mercy and kindness, does something that they're asking for. Why? Not because of the strength of their faith. That's actually not at all what the case is. It's because of who they're asking. So even if you come here today and your faith is so small, so weak, and maybe you feel like you're literally at the end of your rope, you're actually in a really, really great place. Maybe you're at a place of paralyzing fear where you feel like if Christ doesn't step in and answer, no one's going to answer. There's nowhere else to go. You're in a good place. Because the truth is there's not. There is nowhere else to go. You must cry out to Jesus. And in crying out to Him, you'll realize that small faith in a big God doesn't make sense. You know, there's lots that reckons in this passage back to Psalm 104, verses 6 and 7. Here's what it says. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. Or when God is rebuking Job, back in Job 38, 8-11. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds in its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far you shall come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. That person in the flesh, Jesus. Small faith is better than none because it reaches out to Christ alone. Good. Good. Small faith in a great God is essentially unsustainable. Even though he is kind and he is good to say, Why are you have little faith and yet still does something nice, there's no indication at all that he's actually encouraging that that be the sustainable course of your life. You are to get to know this great God more. It's more than just intuitive to think that if faith pleases him, small faith at least pleases him some. But great faith in a great God pleases Him infinitely more. And when you see the greatness of Him, what are you seeing? You're seeing His authority over all these things. This is why you should not shy away from reading theology and doctrine. You are basically reading about the One who commands the sea and the waves. It can only increase your faith. That's the design of it. But He is good, always. And even when we're not initiating, understanding His authority so that our faith would be strengthened, what does He do? He James 1's us, and He brings us various trials. He doesn't look on you. Please don't misconstrue the Scriptures. God will never give you anything more than you can handle. As if He looks at you, takes an inventory of your life, and says, I think He can only handle this. Really? Really? That's not what he does. I see posts like that on Facebook all the time. It's kind of sad to me. Is that really what he's drawing out of us? Is just a little bit of a nudge out of what we can handle? Look, if you have small faith and it's true saving faith, you have Christ. So he's looking at what Christ in you can handle. Brace yourselves. Have you not been through something that you saw someone else go through and think, I could never go through that. And then you did. That is because Christ, in the working of the Holy Spirit, who resides in you, Christian, enables you and strengthens you by His sustaining grace to not just bear under it, but to actually grow in it. To actually even then see, by God's grace for some, they have the eyes to see that it becomes a friend. Because it has redefined faith for them. Because what is faith? It's the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And when you go through trials in this world, it's loosening your grip on stuff that you see. The assurances you've placed in this world. And he cracks open the hand. Just say, you're the only certainty left. So there is kind of that warning that we should pray for greater faith, but understanding that it's a pretty dangerous prayer, but he's trustworthy. He will increase our faith, both in knowledge, in our teaching and understanding of who he is, if we will stay focused on the scriptures, but we also are inviting trials. But do you really think by you're not asking for increased faith that your trials won't come? Stop playing mind games with the Almighty. Kind of doesn't work. He is good. He will increase your faith, whether initially you like it or not. Because in the end, for all true believers, part of the persevering nature is, what we like the most is Jesus. And what gets us depending and crying out to him more often and more resolutely, that becomes our friend. Lastly, faith, it's a faith that causes amazement. So, it's a faith that counts the cost. It's faith that calls to Christ, even in its smallness, but it's a faith that causes amazement. Look at verse 27. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? So they saw rightly. They saw it was both wind and waves. They heard what he said in his rebuke to the wind and to the waves. They put it together. It's kind of like active listening. So let me understand what you just said and then repeat it. But, they, but their appropriate response is marveling. His authority had been witness over the physical and the natural realms. And they were now witnesses of this authority, even over creation itself. They'd seen him heal people. They'd seen him cast out demons. And now he's even commanding the wind and the waves. He's pretty much leaving nothing left outside of his rule. And how does he conduct himself in his rule? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. This is why even in creation, you know, sure, some people will will debate a little bit. And they'll have kind of a theistic evolutionary standpoint. And there's old earth people. There's new earth people. The point of this is not to get into all that. All I'm saying is that, look, wherever you come down, first of all, there's a couple of tenets that have to be there for your position to be sustainable biblically. And that is that, that God through Christ has created all things. He's created all things by the word of His power. And there's nothing that He doesn't rule over. Not one molecule. Because it was ex nihilo He spoke into. It was absolutely nothing. There wasn't a template out there already floating around in the cosmos because there wasn't even a cosmos. He spoke into it. And no matter what you want to think that you believe, and no matter what you want to defend that you believe, that you think somehow to the world will defend an intellectual kind of um, integrity, So you're not just a dumb Christian, but you can really be a thinker. That's fine, but I just still say for your faith standpoint, there needs to be something inside of you that's perfectly okay that if Christ said, let there be light, it didn't even take a second. That when He said, let the mountains be, that He had them in full birth and full maturity, looking like they were millions of years old, just because He can See, what he does in creation, he does in recreation. So be careful how you treat his authority over all elements. Because one is likened to the other. He spoke to Lazarus. There wasn't like a differing view, like his old three-day view or a new three-day view. He just got up and walked out. Because that's what Christ does. He speaks into something that is death and brings it to life. And there's just no, there's no amount of time that can somehow overcome the miraculous nature of that word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. He speaks and we marvel. But again, I run back to Spurgeon in this. He says that a rightful response though to the king of all creation wouldn't be mere amazement. It would be adoration. Adoration. I really think there's a theme in this. There's something of of some encouragement because small faith is better than none. So if you have small faith, at least cry out to Jesus to save you. But hopefully your faith goes deeper to realize that you are only hanging by His sovereign thread daily regardless of how serious your condition. And it's not just for saving you in this world. It is just for loving Him and longing to be with Him for eternity as faith increases. But the same thing for this, it's it's good to be amazed at his authority over all things. That's not a good place to stop. See, true disciples don't just simply admire Jesus. That's what the world wants to do. The world wants to remove all the crazy stuff that he said, but go, yeah, I really respect this one you follow. He taught some amazing things. Like a long haired, bearded mother Teresa. Sweet and kind. Did you hear what he said though? Because if he didn't do that, he's crazy. A true disciple does not merely admire Jesus. A true disciple falls on his knees or on his face, and he worships him as Lord. Is that not what he's already laid out in counting the cost in the previous passage? I will be your sole allegiance. I will be your home. In a sense, I will be your only lasting father. He's calling for nothing less than submission to his lordship, his rule in your life. Not some distant admiration. You will not felt board your way to heaven or anything else when it comes to just acknowledging the stories. You must fall at his feet and worship him personally. So don't just be amazed. Adore him. Lay yourself at his feet in faith, trusting that he has done everything necessary. Because you may feel like you're of little faith and you only call to Christ when you're most desperate. And again, that's better than nothing at all. But you need to have the kind of faith that can lay its head down and sleep in the midst of the storm. That's Christ's kind of faith. Why? Because he controls all things. I still get nervous getting on planes every once in a while. Not too long ago, I flew on a, a turboprop. No. No. Different, give me a different plane. I like turboprops. They're actually kind of smoother, just slower. But, but when you know that you know there's going to be winds and everything else, I mean, I'm, I'm praying, I'm, I'm, I shrink down to my little faith and wake up Jesus in prayer, still get a little nervous about it. We need the kind of faith that actually can lay its head down, regardless of the the travails. Submit to our humanity, in the sense, and say, you know what? There's nothing we can do about it. Fretting and worrying is not faith, it's anti-faith. I'm going to have to sleep. I'm going to trust the sovereign of the universe. And then, if by his grace I wake up in the morning, he'll give me the grace necessary to deal with this. As simple as that sounds, that's a deeper level of faith. Do you know whom it is you're calling upon? He's the master of the seas, the healer of diseases. He's worthy to be called on in any and all circumstances. There should be nothing in your life to which Christ is not addressed in prayer. Pray that your faith would grow, even knowing that it's probably going to lead to some trials. But have you not had them anyway? He is a great God. And He is kind in His greatness to bring you faith, to trust in His greatness. That is not yours naturally. That is a miracle in and of itself. Call out to Christ. Look, ultimately though, this isn't merely about calming the storms of trials or diseases or any other things in your life. Ultimately, it's not. Because the truth is, we know that even though Christ can, He doesn't always choose to heal. He healed many, but He did not heal all. And even though He saved this boat, there were certainly others who drowned in the Sea of Galilee because of similar tempests and storms. And yet He rules over all. He could have. Ultimately, what this shows us is that like all the other miracles, His divine, sovereign ability to conquer everything necessary on behalf of... Of those who follow him. Those that he has given faith to say yes to Christ. We have the assurance that because he is authoritative over all aspects of all things. He has the authority then like we'll see later on in these miracles. That he has the authority to then command repentance. And to give you eternal life. Having granted you forgiveness. He has that authority. Ultimately that's what this story is about. It's just yet another example of he has the authority to do everything necessary to save you eternally. When he went and bore the weight of sin in the place of sinners like you and me. When on Golgotha the the sky grew dark and there was an ominous storm that was around Mount Calvary. And he fully and finally calmed the storm of our sinfulness abating the reaches of hell from reaching up to us so that we could forever live with Him and be with Him peacefully on the shore. Ultimately, that's what this story represents and shows. Christ alone is able. And as He came, He then submitted Himself to those that He could have just flicked into a damnable eternity, but submitted Himself For the sake of bearing the weight of sin for sinners like you and me. Taking our storm, commanding all necessary. So that for those who have faith that Jesus lived that perfect life we couldn't live. Died the death we absolutely deserved. And rose from the grave. Because he is authoritative after all. Securing for us eternity. For those who have faith in that Jesus. You can have eternal life. He may not quell all of the storms that you experience in this world, but you know that His Word has promised that one day storms won't even touch you because you will be with Him. All of the celestial elements that even add to storms and the sun and the moon, they're gone on that day because Christ is all in all. So with that, I don't know about you, but it's a goodness of God then to allow you to go through storms temporally. Because some of you may be here today, you're going through a storm, you just want relief from that storm. You're hoping Jesus can just help you in this storm of whatever you're going through in this life. But maybe you've never truly given your life to Him. What if that storm doesn't go away? What if He doesn't calm that sea? Uh, is it Buddha? Buddha? Mohammed, your best plans and efforts? Or are you going to believe that Jesus, regardless, is the king of creation? And whatever I'm going through doesn't compare. I want to fall on my face before this king and worship him today. Maybe you are here. Most of you probably are Christians here today. And you realize, you know what? I do have faith, but it is small and it is weak. I do not call to him except when things really get honestly pretty bad. You need to ask forgiveness for maintaining such small faith. If he has given you saving faith, you need to get back to getting to know such a great God and repent by getting back into his word. And hearing the psalm speak of His authority over all things. And get back to being on your knees in prayer for all things in your life. Instead of the neglect which presumes that you're okay without addressing Him for work and life and home. Some of you small faith Christians need to repent today. Because all you do is periodically find yourself amazed at Jesus. But you don't regularly Adore Him. Look, if you know Christ, that's, the t- that's what He's doing right now. Because if the Holy Spirit's in you, He's going to work with the Word of faith and He's going to convict you of that. You don't have to come down here and pray on these steps. You don't have to come and talk to an elder. You don't even have to kneel where you are there in the pews. Just as we stand in a moment and sing, just however you want to do it, but you address the Lord in that and repent. And then thank Him that what He accomplished once and for always on the cross... Is still good today. He's forgiven you of your smallness of faith and wants to draw you deeper in love with Him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your kindness to us, that in all of your authority and all of your creation and your love for us, that you allow us to go through great difficulties so that we can at least see if we have faith at all. That we run to you, we cry out to you. But, Lord, that's not sustainable. That's not what you want for your own. You want worship. You want us to find pleasure in you. So, God, help us to repent today of having such small faith and to find ourselves adoring you more. Lord, for some, they're just looking for you to help, and and they've come to the end of the rope, and they didn't even know what it would cost to follow Jesus, but they're also in the midst of a storm, and they don't know what to do but to cry out to you. And, And, Lord, I pray that you would break through all of those things today. And to show them clearly that they need to confess to you that they are sinners. That they need to acknowledge that you alone are Savior and King. And to invite you, really in a sense, just obeying your command to repent. And they say, I turned from trusting in this world and trying it on my own. I want to trust you now only. Believing that you've been raised from the dead, that you're able, and that they would follow you every day. God, may it be that simple may it be to your pleasure that these things are done. Lord, do your will now in our midst. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.